everyone. This is Rohan Sadanti, and welcome to the Wharton Digital Health Podcast. It's a podcast where MBAs can connect with the alumni community about the latest trends, company initiatives, and jobs available in the payer provider, digital health, and investing spaces. I'm joined today by a co-host and one of the students taking over the podcast next year, Jason Peterson. Jason, really excited to have you on board. Would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Definitely. Hi, everyone. It's great to meet the community. I'm a first-year MBA student here at Wharton. Uh, before school, I was pre-med and undergrad, and I have a master's in public health. Um, I worked as an investor with a focus on public healthcare companies, worked on my own healthcare software startup, and right before school, I helped start the corporate venture capital practice at Roy Vant Sciences, where I invested in the software companies in the life sciences industry. On this podcast, we're thrilled to have Michael Greeley, co-founder and general partner at Flare Capital Partners, an early stage healthcare venture technology firm. Hi, Michael. It's great to have you on the podcast. Great to talk to you guys. To share a bit more on this impressive background, prior to co-founding Flare Capital, he was a founding general partner of Flybridge Capital Partners. At Flare, he focuses on the reinvention and transformation of the business of healthcare. And he has a particular interest in service delivery models, robotics, and human-computer interfaces. How did I do, Michael? You, you nailed it. Perfect. I'd like to think the business of healthcare is more comprehensive. Maybe we'll, we'll get into that, but it's super exciting times in our industry. Awesome. Well, let's just jump into it. Uh, can you share a bit more about your background and how you ended up starting Flare? Uh, yeah, of course. So I've started over the course of my career three venture firms. This is being the third and, and, and maybe arguably um, one of the more exciting uh, uh, platforms that we're building here. Uh, so I was an organic chemist like you, Jason. I didn't quite go as far as you, but I was pre-med, took my medical school exams and ended up, unfortunately, oh, wow. um, fortunately at Harvard Business School. Um, uh, and have been in the investment field for more than 25 years. And, you know, part of, part of, I think the, the insights around this opportunity. So we started the firm five years ago. Uh, I left Flybridge to do that, um, was obviously the transformation of the business of healthcare. Super exciting. We'll talk a lot about that. I'm sure on, on this, uh, podcast. Uh, but I, what I saw was the venture model was being um, sort of reinvented. Uh, I had been on the uh, board of the NVCA at the time and have been, you know, looking reflectively at our, at the venture industry. We can talk a little bit more about that, but I thought there was a market opportunity to come to build uh, a much more dedicated, focused firm on uh, what is this, you know, $3 trillion category, uh, just serving those entrepreneurs. And so that's what we've done. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. And it's interesting to hear kind of your entrepreneurial zeal and how that led you to start Flare. Um, I know one of the things that VCs like to promote is kind of finding a partner. Could you talk a little bit about how you, how you found Bill, how you guys found each other and started Flare? Sure. So Bill, Bill Geary, uh, my co-founding partner, was uh, investing in very similar opportunities at Northbridge. He'd been there for uh, almost since the beginning at Northbridge. Northbridge and Flybridge, I appreciate that's a lot of bridges, uh, both based in Boston, had collaborated uh, on probably 15 different opportunities, investments. Uh, and so we were sort of preferred co-investors. And Bill had very many, of, and so he and I were kind of competing and collaborating, you know, over 15 years, uh, had very uh, similar perspectives about the market opportunity. And um, as I said, I was convinced, you know, if you look at the venture industry, you know, if you put your Wharton business school hat on, 
there are several hundred venture firms, or probably 800 venture firms. And what has emerged over the, you know, really post the Great Recession 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, a real barbelling of the industry. And so you have, you know, terrific, larger, multi-billion, multi-office, multi-strategy venture firms. Uh, and at the, kind of the other end of the continuum, you had um, what I thought were really exciting, but very small focused firms, either by sector or by geography. And many times they were kind of 50 million in size, so they were quite focused. And 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 I thought at risk of being subscale. And Bill shared a lot of those insights, and so I thought there was an opportunity, kind of in the middle of that that distribution, to raise. And what we ended up raising five years ago was a 200 million dollar dedicated um, healthcare tech fund. Uh, and the power of that size, it was quite deliberate, was you could have enough names in the portfolio. We ended up having 17 core holdings in that fund. Uh, so you have sort of diversity of names. Uh, you have time diversity. So you, we we invested that uh, over a little over four years. Um, and But you can still be life cycle investor. And so the art of kind of building a venture fund portfolio is thinking very critically about reserves and what you own at the end. So anyway, as we kind of we're comparing notes. We both saw this healthcare industry creating interesting opportunities, and that those entrepreneurs were relatively underserved. And um, that was the, that was the original insight. We, we think you know it, it's played out terrifically well. Um, we're uh, obviously uh, in our business. You raise funds every three, four, five years. So uh, we'll continue to scale the franchise. Uh, and, and one of the uh, kind of attribute of the fund, the healthcare industry, as we all know, is so horribly complicated right now. It's chaos. Uh, what we thought um, was to have more of an engaged relationship with some of the leading healthcare companies in the United States. So about half the capital in the funds come from strategics, uh, household brand names, retailers, lab companies, device companies, hospitals, insurers. Um, and so we thought. Uh, you know, one of the distinct, distinguishing uh, factors of what we've built is uh, having this engaged model with our strategic LPs. And the balance of the fund are family offices, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, some more traditional institutions. Uh, but we really wanted to embrace collaborating with uh, some of the more innovative, larger healthcare companies. Got it. And thanks for letting us kind of peek behind the kimono there to understand how you put it all together. We want to stay for just one second on that on that angle you brought up, which is corporate venture capital. Um, you've highlighted, you know, and even in a blog post that corporate VCs participated in 17% of all deals in the past quarter. Uh, the deals accounted for 60% of all dollars invested. I I have the thesis, and I want you to tell me why I'm wrong. That corporate venture and healthcare will only play a larger and larger role, especially in early stage, because they can help with adoption. And reduce yeah, that I, cycle. Uh, do you so see it that way? There's no way. I, yeah, I couldn't push back on. Sorry, go ahead, Ron. That's it. I just want to know. So, do, do you see corporate VC really continuing to play a larger role? And then, how has that relationship worked for you? You mentioned you strategically brought on certain LPs and and what have you. How how has that worked for Flair? And and where do you see that going? Yeah, and so I I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I I think the tension that we're trying to um, reconcile is the best entrepreneurs have this aversion for good or bad of having a corporate VC on their cap table at the beginning, seed or series A. And 
you know, you can debate if there's if that's a sensible concern or not. But the concern I think a lot of them share is that there's going to be sort of this undue outsized influence on my product roadmap, that there's pressure to build something that only they can use. Um, so, so there's, I think with great entrepreneurs, you know, there's a sense of I'd love to work with them, but later. Um, and then conversely, the large active corporate venture firms and healthcare corporate uh, sponsored venture firms are part of organizations where those executives are saying, we've got, you know, they look forward and say, God, the next 10 years are, are really exciting or I'm terrified. I'm, I'm, and either way, I'm, I'm somewhat unprepared. So we need to get closer to the best entrepreneurs. So, so as you listen, you know, as I was listening to the marketplace, you know, five, six years ago, you heard that this kind of dichotomy where the guy, the people running the, the biggest healthcare companies knew they didn't have the capabilities in house yet. And they were looking to the entrepreneurs to help solve problems and the entrepreneur said, I need access to them, but I don't want them on my cap table. So anyway, that was part of the industrial logic of what we think we've built. But you're absolutely right. And so why you have this 17% of all deals has a corporate fund, but that was whatever it was, 60% of the dollars, is because they're coming in later and they're coming in quite aggressively. And so I think you're going to see that just increase um, as these companies uh, scale. They need a lot of capital and, you know, out, they, they quickly outgrow a lot of the early stage venture funds so they can look at growth funds or they can look at corporates. And I think the corporates are in a, are a wonderfully interesting position, um, but, you know, they should just accept that they're going to be brought in in, you know, the Series C round, not the Series A round. Perfect. And kind of staying on this topic of kind of broader market trends, uh, I think one of the really interesting things about the way kind of you publish and you're out there is that you have these broader market views. Um, so we'd love to dig in a little bit and learn a little bit more about what you think about the broader market. I know you have some potentially controversial views on the amount of capital flowing into the healthcare sort of digital health space now, but we'd love to just dig in a little bit and, and hear what you think. Yeah, so, so um, we don't, in our shop, we don't talk about our strategies being digital health. Um, that is a nice, convenient way to kind of default to it. We think it's more comprehensive, but I'll use digital health uh, and we made a small investment in Rock Health, so we look at a lot of their data, um, you know, the group out in the valley. Um, so per the Rock Health data, what we thought a year ago that 18 was going to be kind of $7 billion of activity. And if you look back five, six, seven, eight years ago, it was kind of a billion dollars, one to two billion dollars. So this year, it ended up being, uh, 2018 ended up being over $8 billion. So it was you know, 15% more than we thought coming into the year. Um, the reality was sort of eight, 8.1 billion. I think it was the more precise number. Um, and, and so now we, we just saw the first quarter data come out and it said for the first quarter in this sector, it was only a billion dollars. So you, my fear a year ago, and I hope it doesn't play out, is it's sort of a bell curve and that 18 was a high water mark. I, I don't think it'll be quite a bell curve, but clearly and I can see it anecdotally in a number of our portfolio companies, when they went out to raise in 18, they raised more than they were targeting. So maybe we've just pulled forward from 19 into 18, but I think it's something we need to watch closely because if we're moving into a more capital constrained environment, and this is why I spend any time thinking about this because it, it, it would influence how we operate as board members, the advice we might provide. So if, if, it was eight million last eight billion last year, and it's four billion this year. You know that 
risks sort of forcing some consolidation, some, you know, executives running these startups need to be quite focused on runway. If So I think it's too early to call the year, clearly. Um, but the fourth quarter of 18 was about a billion dollars. So if you just annualize those six months, we're on a pace to being kind of four plus four or five billion dollars. And that'll feel very different to a lot of these startups. And, and typically in this sector, there are probably 300 to 350 companies created. The first quarter of 19, we're on a pace to having that be well under 300. So again, I, I'm not necessarily in the industry prognication, prognostication business, but you know, we may be right in the middle of having turned a corner and, and I'm not sure everybody knows that. And, yeah. you know, but, but I'll, I will say, and then I'll, I'll stop rambling. The U S advertising industry is $200 billion. Uh, out of that over the last 15 or 20 years, we had Google, Facebook, Twitter, we had a thousand great venture back companies. This industry is 15 times larger. And so what happens kind of year over year is interesting but directionally, we're going to see just some extraordinarily valuable startups emerge out of this sector. And that's why I, I'm so excited about it. When you asked me at the very outset, we started this firm because we see some, some sense of inevitability to how successful this category is going to become as investors. Yeah, and we want to get we want to get back to Flair, but one more market question because you're one of the few who really takes the time to think about this and explain it to the rest of us. Um, and and by the way, when you ramble, companies are born. So please keep rambling as much as you can. <laughs> um, so this this first quarter, we've seen a slowdown in terms of performance of managed care stocks, public managed care stocks heavily underperforming the S and P. And I understand that we're not in the public equities business right now, but there must be a spillover. I'm wondering if there is. And in these conversations, they're having the political risk that potentially is coming down the pipeline in 2020 seems to be stifling the markets when it comes to public companies, United Health, Cigna, whose fundamentals are fine, but getting beaten up in the public markets. Is there a relationship between what's happening there at the, at the broadest managed care levels in the public markets? And then what you're seeing when people are going out and feeling skittish or, or maybe not raising at the clip they were in 2018? Yeah, terrific question. And uh, we had our annual meeting last week. Um, we probably had 125 people there. Most were our investors. Uh, and if you went to our website, flarecapital.com, you'd see my advisory board. Um, and many of them are CEOs of the companies you just cited. And they were all there. And so, um, uh, I think it's a tale of two cities, and I think the market's way oversold on these public stocks. Again, I don't, I'm not a public stock analyst, and if you read some of the public stock analyst reports over the last couple of weeks, you know there's some very strong buys uh, on the sector. United uh, last week came out with uh, a, they beat first quarter, and the stock was off. So it, it's sort of nonsensical, and it, I, you know, I think the consensus coming out of our annual meeting was clearly this Medicare for all, whatever that ends up being, that rhetoric um, is hurting public stock sentiment. Uh, your specific question though, is it affecting how we operate? You know, the companies, the entrepreneurs we're, we're privileged to partner with are building solutions that will be relevant three, four, five, six years from now. And so while there's a lot of atmospherics that are disturbing, I think they're relatively insulated. Um, and, you know, if they can, uh, uh, you know, and they're not, 
you know, so they, they're funded, you know, 15 months forward, 18 months forward is typically the runway each round gives them. So they're, they're for the most part, heads down, just, you know, building interesting businesses. Uh, and they're not dependent on public market sentiment. You know, if we start to see real constriction of budgets, IT budgets, um, you know, then maybe there's a recalibration. But the fact that, you know, it's terrible that the sector's off 20, 25% this last six or eight weeks um, is, you know, bothersome, but it's not fundamentally changing at least how we operate. Great. And like, now that you're talking about how you operate, it would be great to uh, talk a little bit about how you actually invest. Uh, Thesis-driven, opportunistic, how, how do you typically try and find companies? In, in yeah. Uh, and so that's the holy grail. We, we do have one slide, which we created five years ago. Uh, it's unchanged. So it's our investment team slide. Uh, and I think the, the power in just that statement, and there's only five kind of themes to that, five sub-themes that create our strategy. Uh, these are really enduring big problems. Um, you know, I think they'll, that slide will be unchanged over many funds, and so the kind of the framework of what we're, what we're focused on. But ultimately, it's all about the people. And, um, and so a great person who doesn't neatly fall into that, any of our themes uh, is somebody we'd be excited to back. So it, it first and foremost, it sounds such a throwaway comment, but it, uh, it's tr really about great people. And, I, and, and I'll make a comment that may be controversial, but um, you know, if you just said at any point in time, like today, how many entrepreneurs in this space are out raising capital, it, it's going to be several hundred and maybe a thousand people running around trying to raise capital. And I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but it could, it could literally be several hundred people. Um, of those, uh, how many of those opportunities go on to be billion-dollar, several hundred million-dollar companies? It, it may be a dozen, maybe 20. I mean, I, who, who knows? And it's not several hundred. Um, so notwithstanding how excited I am, at any point in time, the, that cohort is going to create, you know, a few dozen great, great businesses. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a funny industry. Those people we're, we're trying to find best of breed entrepreneurs and we want them to be looking for us as hard as we're looking for them. It, it, it's a chaotic time in the market. It's not that the others won't build interesting businesses. They may build great businesses that get sold for $50 million. Um, but the curse of the venture model is it's multiple of capital. So we're looking for the businesses that drive kind of, um, outsize, you know, 5, 10, 20x returns, and therefore they have to be really big companies. The, the, the great thing about healthcare is these sectors, these, these categories are so enormously large. And so, um, you know, to my comment about the, the juxtaposition to, to the advertising industry, just there, there's just so many opportunities ripe for innovation, and the dollars that flow are just staggeringly large. So there is the opportunity to build really big, big businesses relatively quickly, but not all the entrepreneurs running around raising capital, they will have that good fortune. And so, you know, we're just, we're just mindful of that. The themes, I think, are relatively self-evident. Um, happy to touch on them if it's helpful, but um, it, it's, uh, it's really all about the people, first and foremost. Yeah. So we spent, we spent a lot of time thinking about strategies to get to those people. Well, that, that might be the, some of the secret sauce there. If we all had strategies for getting the right people, <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> so I like that how, how strategically you think about it. 
just to give our viewers a sense of it, um, sometimes when they're hearing the podcast, they're quickly trying to Google, so it's easier for us to help them out. Flare Capital has an extensive portfolio of household um, names. Can you give us a story? It's hard to choose a favorite child, but just a story that maybe exemplifies um, your process of investment and meeting people and building that trust. Yeah, and so I, I think the the one that immediately jumps to mind is um, a very successful investment uh, we've already exited called Circulation. Uh, and in a sentence, it was a company that um, focuses on NEMT, non-emergency medical transportation services, and doing it in, in on the back of Uber and Lyft. So it was a very disruptive uh, model, uh, and um, was uh, the, the two co the two co-founders. Uh, was a woman, one of them was Robin Heffernan, was a woman who I had worked with uh, at my prior firm. And then uh, we backed Robin in, her, in one of her early startups. And then this was, so this is my third um, uh, interaction with Robin, and, you know, enormously talented. Her co-founder was John Brownstein, Chief Innovation Officer at Boston Children's. Uh, BCH is a very important partner of, of the firm. Um, Sandy Fenwick, who's the CEO of Boston Children's, is on our advisory board. Uh, so we collaborate a lot with uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Um, John also happens to be Uber's healthcare advisor. So there was a set of insights uh, that um, he had around, he did this novel flu shot pilot a number of years ago. But if the issue is missed appointments, which was the initial uh, market opportunity, could you have an intelligent layer between the healthcare system uh, and these transportation networks that had that had obviously been created very successfully. So we seated the company. I actually chaired the board, so, so quite involved. Um, and why I think it's such a powerful testament to how we've built Flare and to the market opportunity is the Series A, uh, four of our strategic LPs co-invested, all with very, very different and powerful use cases. So it had initially you know, two years ago was sort of a thesis around missed appointments. You know, people don't come to their doctor over transportation and parking and convenience. If you could solve that, you know, presumably they get better care and over time they, they have better outcomes. Uh, became all of a sudden much more comprehensive clinical trial management, moving nurse practitioners around. Um, and so it's a often a covered benefit. So anyway, so the company quite unexpectedly received an unsolicited offer and, and was, was acquired um, by a legacy broker firm, transportation brokerage firm. But it was a terrific investment in, and it really did underscore kind of as you scratch the surface on some of these business issues, they kind of blossom into these enormous market opportunities. But the, the real power of the model was, you know, it was, a, it was people we knew well uh, and so there's sort of a sense of recycling great entrepreneurial talent to go off and solve, um, you know, these, a very large uh, problem in the healthcare industry, and so actually, parenthetically, what I think is quite intriguing, it's caused me to think a lot about: Are there other success stories outside of healthcare that could be kind of reskinned and brought into healthcare? So, should there be an Airbnb of healthcare? Should there be a PayPal? Just think of all the models, and, and maybe that's a dry well, but. What we did in circulation so wonderfully is we put an intelligent HIPAA compliant layer wrapped around Uber and Lyft, and we started solving very quickly big big problems in the healthcare industry. So I think it's a provocative idea as 
is one of our themes is sort of the consumerization of healthcare. As you think about successful models elsewhere, can you can you kind of repurpose them for healthcare? Um, but anyway, so I, I think circulation is one that I'm particularly excited about. We sold the company after 18 months of seeding it from 18 months after seeding, and um, and it was a terrific investment for everybody. Sounds like a real home run. 18 months. Uh, get to I guess we'll probably have to recycle that capital at that point. Um, yeah. Kind of stick on the, the theme of kind of what you see is interesting going forward. We'd love to dig in a little bit and learn more about you know what what investment opportunities or areas that you think are particularly interesting. So we have five uh, uh, silos, and that, that suggests that they're quite separate. So it's hard to to neatly package them as individual discrete opportunities, but the headlines are there's a lot of activity around novel care delivery models, <clears throat> not unexpectedly. And Iora Health, you mentioned a moment ago, would fall into that basket. Uh, we there's a patient as a consumer as a member, so there's sort of this retailization consumerization of healthcare theme. Um, there's a broad theme we think a lot around payment reform and kind of the the necessary tools and infrastructure around driving that transformation. And then the others, um, uh, there's one called around analytics, uh, and you mentioned Adion earlier. We think that's a really wonderful example. Uh, there's a local Philadelphia company called Health Verity. I'm on the board of. It's a terrific, terrific company. Um, uh, it's, it's in Philadelphia. So we think there's an analytics uh, body of work that's going to be really valuable. And then lastly, kind of infrastructure. Um, we recently seeded a company in the blockchain space. So there's a there's a whole set of infrastructure uh, opportunities we think kind of unique to healthcare um, that are very promising. So those are kind of the the framework we 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 default to. We do allow for very random, non-obvious things to come in. So that's we're not hard and fast on that. As I said a moment ago, it really is around people and um, and and which which is interesting because we we try and think deeply about talent. There's a lot of talent coming laterally, um, and there's no shortage of places for people who are at American Express or Amazon or other successful uh, businesses to engage in healthcare. Um, and then there's a lot of talent that's growing up uh, sort of in the business of healthcare, and they're leaving their legacy hospital systems or insurance companies, and they want to go reinvent, you know, and solve all the problems that they were struggling with uh, earlier in their career. So. It really is this, you know, this interesting uh, matrix of where people are coming from. For us, the commonality is if they've been successful in the past and they have <clears throat> kind of a wonderful voice of the customer, they really intuit what the problem, what the customer is looking to buy in a very, very, you know, precise way. That to us is a really interesting uh, uh, combination of, of, of attributes where those people would be really interesting for us to, to potentially back. Got it. That sounds really interesting. And then, um, so I guess the common theme in sort of venture capital is, you know, you want to have an idea that no one else is, else has. Uh, are there are there trends in healthcare or any accepted wisdom that you think maybe is a little bit stretched or that you might particularly disagree with? Um, I don't know if there's anything that I would kind of violently disagree with. I, again, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit thought-provoking. Uh, there is a profile of entrepreneur that I think, uh, at least in our portfolio, that um, 
looks like they're on trajectories of being quite successful, and they, they tend to be slightly older, um, older in like late 30s to late 40s, so they're not old, um, and and they've had you know a decade plus of really important operating experience. So that voice of the customer, you know, I think there was a kind of version 1.0 of digital health. There were a ton of young, brilliant, talented entrepreneurs, you know, coming out of school, out of undergrad, and they'd created you know apps or some sort of more lightweight tools. Um, and uh, you know, I think that was a really interesting on-ramp for a lot of people, but there were a lot of broken hearts um, and those companies never scaled or for whatever reason. So, so we do see kind of two truisms in, and these aren't hard and fast rules in our portfolio that, that, that those companies that are scaling and either they're growing quickly or they can raise capital at high prices can tell a cost reduction story in the near term, sort of months or quarters. And the issue is attribution that their product uniquely fully attributed, reduces costs. Uh, and then second, uh, as important, it's not that there's a priority, um, but in the medium term, sort of two to three years, they can tell, again, the issue's attribution, with attribution, an outcome story. And I think version 1.0 of this, and again, this, these, are, these aren't absolutes, but there was a lot of excitement about, I'm going to build a lightweight tool to drive revenues in my customers. And, and yeah, sure, that's important and interesting, but we see people that are getting reward, the entrepreneurs, is they can tell a cost and an outcome story, and then they tell a revenue growth story for their clients. Um, and that that's a pretty nuanced, you know, value prop to articulate. So I think, um, you know, so for us, you know, that that's a slightly more experienced entrepreneur, uh, and, you know, oftentimes they're matched with a killer CTO that doesn't need to have been within healthcare. Actually, more often not that, that helps not to have come from healthcare, but um, it's sort of a two-headed monster. These founding teams are somebody who's voiced the customer, and there's somebody who's got deep, deep technical chops. Um, and you know, healthcare is has some great technical talent, but you know, there's some other sectors that have have developed some fabulous technical talent just because they're further along in the, this transformation phenomenon. Oh, it's definitely provocative to kind of go against the narrative of, I guess, the, the young Stanford dropout who, who founds a billion-dollar company. You've probably all seen the, the yeah, HBO. Yeah, and listen, th th that, can, that can exist, but, um, you know, it's just, again, for us, it's, this is such a chaotic, complicated industry. It, it's hard to not to know what you don't know until you're actually you're running a P&L in, in the business, in the industry. Um, and I, you know, I think of like Andrew Kress, who runs Health Verity. He w built a business, sold it to IMS, uh, and was there for a number of years. So he, he's one of the smartest people I've ever talked to about healthcare data. And that's because he worked at one of the largest data uh, aggregators and um, brokers. So, you know, just that, that experience plays out time and again in our portfolios where those people see the shortcomings of the legacy providers and you know, have a risk profile where they'll step out and fix it in a, in a, in a hot startup. And so you've talked a lot about talent. Uh, and we want to about, talk about how you sort of hire and maintain your, your talent pool. And I think one of the interesting things that your firm does is the Flair uh, Scholars Program. So we'd love to yep. learn a little bit more about sort of why you decided to do it, how it works, what's involved there. Yeah, so, and we have three terrific uh, Wharton uh, 
uh, classmates of yours who are in the class of 2019, uh, Slayer Scholars. Um, so the the initial thought was um, part of it informs our staffing model. Healthcare tech, digital health is relevant in probably 25 cities. So, um, and actually we only have three or four companies in Boston. We're based in Boston. We have two in Denver. So, so it's a very distributed set of opportunities. Um, and to my comment earlier about the entrepreneurs that we think on the, you know, this is an absolute, but they tend to be slightly older. What we thought was there are all these terrific young people. So we created this Flair Scholars Program. We have 109 current and former scholars. Half of them come from industry. Half of them come from great schools around the country. And this year's class is way overrepresented by Wharton people because uh, we typically only have one from each school. Uh, and it's probably, there are probably a dozen schools that are in the program. And we, um, we get everybody together you know, three times a year. We have webinars throughout the course of the year. So our, what we're trying to do is kind of crack open the, the box of what is venture capital. We invite them into partner meetings. They work on projects. Um, uh, and the reciprocity is we want them to be thoughtful. You know, they see interesting things to funnel it back. Um, uh, and with our academic scholars, we host kind of pizza and beer nights on campus. So part of it is just extending our network. What's going to, what's emerging though, is a handful of them have joined portfolio companies. So there is, we have a kind of a Slack group. We have a LinkedIn group. We communicate to them, you know, what we see in the market, job opportunities, but also more importantly in our companies. Uh, we have two uh, senior associates on the investment team. They both were out of prior classes. And so, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see where we take this over time. Uh, but my suspicion is this will become increasingly more and more important. I, I think we're on the threshold of now starting to back some of them because they, you know, some of the earlier classes, those alums have been out in the real world and they're getting ready to start a company. So um, anyway, so it's, it's, uh, we think it's an important part of the kind of go to market and our team, our extended team. Uh, and, you know, they're all super, super talented. Uh, and, you know, frankly, they're passionate about what we do, the transformation of healthcare. Um, and we learn a lot from them. I think that's so interesting. I think one of the things that particularly strikes me is that the people who are also from industry that, that are in the program, because I think a lot of us are familiar with programs that kind of just have these find their, their classmates. But I think to your point before about industry knowledge, I think that's super uh, important and powerful. For component of your yeah, and our, in, in the next one, we'll have close to 20 strategics. And again, these are household names. You 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 are very familiar with with them. And so a lot of them come from um, uh, from those companies. You know, they're kind of rising stars in those companies. And then we have a couple of international scholars. Uh, um, it's not clear that we would invest directly in something in in say China, but we you know we need to be very smart about what's going on over there because over time, you know, our companies, a lot of our portfolio companies, you know, not at the Series A stage, but by the time they've gotten to Series C and D. You know, they they have services and products that could be very relevant in those markets. So anyway, we're trying to be thoughtful about how to how to scale that. And it, you know, I'm really thrilled to see some of these scholars get plugged into our companies. Um, the number three or four person at, at circulation was a Flare scholar, and so I know that was a very very valuable experience for for him. Um, so, you know, we're we're thrilled to kind of get them plugged into our companies.
That's great. And I guess thinking about how some of the MBAs listening can kind of replicate that success there, what, what companies in your portfolio are hiring now? Um, is yeah, so, and this isn't scientific, but my suspicion is when a company raises around a capital, probably 70% of the proceeds go to salaries or, you know, some, some significant amount. So Health Verity in your backyard just raised a $25 million round uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, and they're very, very quickly scaling. Uh, and I, I think it's one of our really bright emerging stars in the portfolio. Um, uh, what else? I mean, really almost across the board, they're all, they're all adding staff pretty aggressively. Uh, we have another company in the mid, mid Atlantic called Somatis in the kidney care space. They're in Northern Virginia. It's a little obviously further south from you. Um, but they're scaling very quickly and adding a ton of people. So, um, uh, Aspen RX Health, the company we started with one of our LPs, uh, it's kind of sort of an Uber of pharmacist model. Not that the pharmacists are in cars, but it's a virtual pharmacist network. Uh, we think is really, really exciting. Just went live recently. Uh, they're in Tampa, uh, and they're going to treble, triple headcount this year, um, 20 going to 60. So. When these companies, as I said, raise capital, they immediately turn around and start to hire a bunch of people. So, um, you know, that, to the extent, you know, any of your listeners are looking for interesting creative startups, if you just look through some of the funding announcements, uh, that would be top of the list to, to go to go approach. That's great. And I personally really happy to hear about that the Tampa-based startup, that's my hometown. So maybe my parents oh. can make me happy and uh, actually go down there and, and keep working in healthcare. Uh, <laughs> well, I had some concerns because I, I don't I don't naturally think of Tampa as an interesting area, but now that I've gotten into it, we've actually recruited a world class technical team, and there's a lot of actually uh, communications call center kind of infrastructure talent down there, uh, and that played perfectly well for Aspen because we're creating this virtual pharmacist network to do these virtual consults. So I was really pleased with, uh, and that, that's my earlier comment. There are these I don't want to call them secondary cities, but they're these cities that aren't San Francisco, Boston, or New York that you don't naturally think of. But there's enormously interesting things going on in in, in those cities in, in our in our sector. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely excited about Tampa. Uh, a lot of investors kind of retire and end up uh, going down there and spending their time, you know, seeding the industry down there as well. So it's good to see that yep. the capital built into these, I guess, quote unquote, secondary cities. Um, as we get kind of towards the end of the, the podcast, I just want to ask sort of one oddball question. Um, what's the best or most important thing that you've read, watched, or done? Uh, and I think, you know, everyone's going to say marrying their spouse. So maybe maybe the second best thing you've read, watched, or done. The most important thing in my life or in the last week? What's the time frame? <laughs> Those two I, are the I same. Away by, I was blown away by Game of Thrones last week. Um, I don't think that I don't know if I would rank that high, but I did not expect uh, to get killed like that. But um, <laughs> we're definitely going to maybe out that part of the podcast to avoid yeah, any that spoilers. Yeah, that was probably a spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, I think um, I think the most influential thing. I actually grew up in the Far East, and I. I constantly am amazed at how relevant that experience has been for me, um, and particularly in light of kind of the political nonsense that we're witnessing. 
uh, and just kind of the sensitivities around uh, other cultures, other uh, and so actually, as I, I don't know, the most important thing, I, I think that was probably the most influential. It really reframed how I look at the world. I grew up in Hong Kong, and so you look back uh, on that in a you know wildly overcrowded city, and to be in the absolute distinct minority. Um, and I think out of that came, um, you know, you'd see behavior of like American tourists, and you'd kind of cringe. Uh, and so I think it gives me a sense of how, you know, my deep affection for the country, having seen it and grown up outside of it and watched how privileged we are to live here and, you know, privileged we are to go to schools like Wharton and to do what we're doing. Um, but on the other hand, it also, I think, allows me to be a little more reflective and critical when we see behavior that's just not uh, admirable behavior. And I'm not making a political comment, but um, anyway, so I, and it's a, I find that as I travel around the world, I travel around the world quite a bit. We have investors from around the world. Um, it it does, I think, ground you a little bit to, you know, to to have that more global perspective. But I don't know if that yeah. neatly answers your question. But I'm uh, I was with some investors this morning from Europe, and you know, I just think it gives you a lot more, a much deeper appreciation that you know, some of the issues that they're struggling with or some of the opportunities they're they're looking at. It's just different than what we have. And, you know, we're so fortunate to be living and doing what we're doing. Um, so I think I'm I'm incredibly grateful for having grown up overseas. That's, that's fantastic. And that, that kind of, that's a nice, some nice closing thoughts and good advice for folks to develop that global perspective or at least an ex-U.S. perspective to, to realize. Well, yeah, how- I say this all, I say this all the time, particularly given the rhetoric right now, um, you know, for $600, you can get a plane and go to Beijing for three days if you've never been there and just force yourself. It'll, you'll feel like, you know, you'll feel terrible physically, but it'll completely change your view of the world. So if you've never been to that, that part of the world, just, just force yourself to go on a Wednesday night and you'll be back on Sunday and just go see it. And so the enormity of it, um, you know, I think it's not, I'm not making a healthcare comment, but you can see other systems and, um, you know, I think it just it probably makes everybody more informed as an investor, as an entrepreneur, just to see kind of these other markets and how people exist and function. But I would encourage everybody to go see that part of the world if they haven't been over there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and Michael, we're, we're, you know, we're still starry eyed here because we managed to get you on the podcast. Thanks again for coming on. Can you just give people where to find you? What, what mediums you like to kind of publish on? Um, if you, we'd appreciate if you could brag a little here just so that people know where they can find, <laughs> where they can get to. Sure. Uh, so the firm's website is flarecapital.com. Uh, I think it's a reasonably good website. Uh, I am at Michael at Flare Capital, uh, and I uh, do publish quite a bit. You know, I regularly publish. I The service, the community service I'm trying to provide is, I'm amazed at how little entrepreneurs know about my industry. So I try and give some sense of how our industry works, what we like, don't like. Uh, and then I also obviously talk about some of the healthcare themes. And that's um, on theflyingbridge.com. It's a little bit of a play on my old firm's name. Uh, and uh, happy to do that. And uh, Twitter handle is Greels1, G-R-E-E-L-S-1. Um, but, you know, what we I try and 
push a culture here of being fully transparent and fully accessible. So, uh, uh, and I operate with a wonderful uh, set of partners and investors. So we're all at everybody's disposal. Well, that was very evident from today's podcast. Uh, you really just gave us a great sense of yourself, the team, and, and why you're doing what you're doing. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We look forward to having a continued relationship with you and, and your portfolio company. Thanks, Roanne, Jason. Come and see us when you're in Boston. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks. All right.